Hey everybody, welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. So this is my first part two. I've never made you guys have to come back for a part two, but the twins that I was doing this week, it was just taking too long. Like it was going to end up being a three hour long video. There's too much information and the information out there is important to the case, so I had to split it up between two parts. As much as I don't want it to go two episodes, I do think it's actually really cool because I get to go into a lot of detail and I hope that everybody checks out part two. I really do. I'm even wearing the same sweater because, first of all, I love this sweater. It should not only get one episode. And second of all, I want you to know, you know, this is part two, okay? We're still talking about the craze. So just a quick update on me. Guys, I am going through it, okay? <laughs> like, I'm talking, I am going through it. I am three days, I want to say, yeah, three days into my IVF journey, and it's absolutely Absolutely miserable and I'm losing my mind. It'll be worth it in the end, but oh my god, I have never gone through more insanity in my life. Like, I am a mess. I'm a mess. Everything about me is a mess. I like cry at a, on a regular basis. I watched a podcast the other day and a girl was crying and I literally cried tears out of my eyes. I am a veteran, okay? I do not cry. Like, that is not a thing. I mean, I'm not th that. Li listen, okay? That's not saying vets don't cry, you know, but like, I'm a hard ass, you know, and I can, I can handle myself. I don't, I'm not, I don't go around here crying ever. No less because someone on a podcast cries. Like, I'm losing my freaking mind, okay? So like, I don't look the greatest right now. I very strongly apologize because like, I'm, I'm a mess and I'm trying to keep my energy up. So I apologize if I'm like a little stale in this video, but just keep in mind, I'm in the midst of it. I'm going through a friggin' war in my body right now. And I appreciate you giving me a little grace because I, I friggin' need it. Okay. I really need it. So let's get back into talking about the Cray Twins and let's finish this one up once and for all and get these two parts out. Part one, I was talking about how the craze really admired George Raft, and he was kind of playing the middleman between the American mafia and them so that they could have a relationship and neither would have to like leave the country or anything like that. And obviously you can't talk on the phone. So yeah, Raft, they're a fan of him and he's playing the go-between. So Lansky and Bruno had hired the craze to protect the club that they owned in the UK, which was called the Colony Sports Club. They paid the craze and by extension, the firm, 500 pounds a week for providing security and making sure that nothing happened to their club. Now, could they relocate their own gangsters to come and live a whole different life in the UK and provide protection? Probably. They probably could. But it's just easier this way. The Krays know the area. The, everybody knows the Krays already. They know to be scared of them. So they know to stay away from a place that they're protecting. And this is kind of the definition of organized crime. Organized crime is when different criminal syndicates or any kind of syndicate is going to work together 
if you're a criminal, you know, you're not just out there pulling bank jobs on your own. It's everybody working together and organizing like a business. So obviously the American Mafia has been in this game a very long time. So it was pretty easy for them to do a little research, find out who the scariest people in the area that they were going into was, and get a little relationship going with them. At one point, Ronnie had attempted to go to New York to meet up with Lansky and Bruno because, like... Hell yeah, like who doesn't want to meet up with Meyer Lansky? He is an absolute legend and everybody wants to meet him. So he tries to go to New York because he wants to meet them in person. He's working with them from afar and he's just like, yeah, screw this. I'm going to New York. But when he tried to go into the U.S., the U.S. was like, oh, hell no. Uh-uh. Nope, we already have enough of our own criminals. We're not taking in criminals from Europe absolutely not. Reverse Uno, turn around, go back where you came from. You are not entering here. Absolutely not. Goodbye. So he turns around and goes home and he doesn't ever get to meet with Lansky and Bruno. During their first meeting, they handed over bearer bonds that they were in possession of. And these bearer bonds figure they're like stocks. It's literally a piece of paper. It's like cash, kind of. It's a piece of paper that in and of itself is worth X amount. So Lansky, and Bruno, they have a crap ton of these bearer bonds. They can't do anything with them, so they hand them over to the craze to convert. And as soon as the craze accepted and said, yeah, we'll convert them, we'll figure this out, we'll get you some money, they automatically get entwined with the Catroni family in Canada as well. The Catroni family had also been involved in procuring these bearer bonds, so the Catroni family has a vested interest in making sure that this transaction goes smoothly because... They have money in it. And the craze did not disappoint. They were able to get the bearer bonds converted. There was no issue whatsoever. And the government in the United States and in Canada, they were looking for these bearer bonds. They had been stolen from a truck. They knew that the bearer bonds were stolen. So they are on the hunt for these bearer bonds. So they're virtually useless in America and in Canada, but in Europe, they didn't know to look out for those. So they were able to sell them and it worked out really well. It went very smoothly. And when that happened, the American mafia is like, uh, score. Like from here on out, the number one peoples, when they need something done that can't be done because the American and the Canadian government are looking out for it because it's so hot is now the Cray twins and the firm. Do you remember in part one when I talked about the Richardson gang. I knew you would remember. If you're watching this right now and you haven't watched part one, leave. Seriously, you have to watch part one for any of this to make any sense whatsoever. So if you're just like, oh, hey, she put up a new episode, let me watch. No, go to part one because you need to watch part one. It's not going to make any sense. So if you are here and you have watched part one already, do you remember when I was speaking about the Richardson gang? And I knew you would, but you know, it's been a little bit, so I just want to make sure you remember, okay? Don't get on my case. Well, George Cornell was a member of the Richardson gang, and he had recently gotten himself into a scuffle with a member of the firm, Richard Hart. George Cornell and Richard Hart got into a tiny little shootout in front of a nightclub, and obviously this pissed off Ronnie. Hart was killed during the shootout, and that shootout led to almost every single member of the Richardson gang being arrested. Every single member, that is, 
except George Cornell. Cornell just so happened to not be at the shootout, so he was free and clear, chilling at a nearby pub called The Blind Beggar. So I know I've mentioned this multiple times. Again, I talked about it in part one. Please, I'm begging you, don't watch this if you didn't watch part one. But in part one, I talked a lot about Ronnie and how mentally ill he is. He's very mentally ill. He is not okay, guys. Like, not okay. This man is off his freaking rocker. That is not to say that every person that's mentally ill is off their rocker. Okay, listen, I am mentally ill. I am on so many different medications. I got 100% from the VA because of how mentally ill I am, okay? I am the last person to say, like, oh, you're mentally ill? You're crazy. You must be killing people. No, absolutely not. But what I am saying is that Ronnie's mental illness had a lot to do with the crazy shit he did. Like, this is not stuff that any normal person, even gangsters, even the scariest gangsters in the world that just do not give a shit, they don't do this kind of crazy shit. Ronnie is consistently on this medication that he was really doing well on it. It did a very good job of managing the symptoms of his illness, but recently he had decided to go off his meds because he was doing good and he felt like he didn't need them. Usually Reggie would be on top of him and make sure that he's on his meds, make sure that you know, every single day he is on his medication, but Reggie is at this point kind of wrapped up in the business that he has going on with Lansky and with George Raft and Bruno. And so things are getting really busy for these guys and he's becoming a pretty big member of organized crime. So he just doesn't have the time to be managing Ronnie's medications and that does not work out well because he's preoccupied. Now Ronnie decides, oh, I'm not going to stay on my medication. Nobody's on top of me for it. I'm in a good place right now. And I think I'm just going to get off. And honestly, I think a lot of people with mental illnesses have gone through this where it's like, okay, I feel good. I don't need to be on medication anymore. And that is the trap right there. You feel good because you're on medications, okay? I've never done this because I'm on one of those medications. I'm on venlafaxine and buspirone, okay? I don't even care. Listen, we're besties. That's not something I usually share, but listen, we have this relationship, okay? So it's okay for me to talk to you about medications. So venlafaxine, which is Effexor, it is one of those medications that you get addicted to. I am 100% addicted to Effexor. And that's fine because it's a manageable medication. It's absolutely necessary because I am a crazy person when I'm not on it. But the problem is if I don't take it, even for one day, I start getting what I call brain zaps. And it's like, I feel this zap that goes through my entire body. Like I'm talking like it happens in my brain and then like my entire body jumps. It's horrible. So I've never gotten off my medications because my body straight up will not allow me to. I will go into withdrawal. It won't be fun. So it wouldn't be a fun time for me to not be on my medications. So it's just easier for me to be on them. But that is not the way that the medications that Ronnie is on works. He doesn't feel worse when he gets off his medication. He feels more like himself. He feels less dampered down. You know, a lot of medications, especially ones for mental health, they will even you out, which means you don't really go down as low, you don't go into the depression and everything, but you also don't really go up. 
very much. You know, you don't get that excitement or happiness or anything like that. So when Ronnie gets off his medication, he's not withdrawing from it, but he does start to feel like he can feel the happiness he hasn't been able to feel while he's on medications. So we've got Ronnie who is having paranoid delusions and he gets a phone call that Cornell, the only member of the Richardson gang who isn't sitting in jail right now, is sitting at the blind beggar having himself a grand old time. Now, Ronnie already has some beef with this man. Cornell had attended a party that Ronnie was at the prior Christmas, and he called him a fat poof, which is apparently a very homophobic and nasty slur to say to somebody. And the only reason I don't censor that is just because I've never heard it, so if somebody's watching this and that is an offensive term, I really apologize. I won't say certain words because the last thing in the world that I ever want to do is offend somebody or make them feel like a derogatory term is being brought up here. I'm an American. I've never heard that term. It sounds kind of funny to me, but if you're in an area that that is a derogatory term, I really apologize for just coming out and saying it, but I don't think that anybody that is American that's listening to this would know what I was talking about without just coming out and saying it. So at the end of the day, he called Ronnie this nasty slur and Ronnie is out for blood and he doesn't really think twice about killing Cornell. He's like, all right, this man is done. Ronnie went to the blind beggar and he walked in and he just shot Cornell in the head. No mask. He didn't send a lower member of the firm to take care of it. He did nothing to try to conceal his identity. He just walked in and boom, one in the head. And you've got an entire bar of onlookers. And this is what I mean by even the scariest gangsters in the world don't do crazy shit like this. This is 100% a symptom of being off his medications. Obviously, this is a really bad look because to everybody else, this looks reckless as hell. The dude under him, Ian Bari, he is like, oh shit, like I did not expect that to happen. And he takes his gun and he puts five shots into the ceiling and he pretty much threatens everybody in the bar like, if you say a word to police, if you say a word to anything, I'm coming for you. You didn't see anything. Nobody saw a goddamn thing. So this is a huge red flag to the American Mafia. The American Mafia has a lot of money wrapped up right now with the firm and with the Kray Twins. They're doing a lot of business. And one of the leaders of this gang literally just walked in and killed somebody in plain sight and everybody watched it happen. That is not the way the mafia gets down. That is way too reckless and that is honestly, it's some cowboy shit that usually ends up with people behind bars. And you know what people behind bars do? They rat. After that incident happened, every single one of the people that were in the bar at the time, let's say they were individually visited. Nobody was going to talk. The barmaid was the main concern because I'm pretty sure that she is the only one that was there that she wasn't really involved in organized crime. This was a known hangout of, like, gang members and people in crime. But this barmaid is just, you know, she she has nothing to do with crime. So that is the number one person that everybody is concerned about because she locked eyes with him as soon as he walked in the door. And when the cops came to ask, she said, yeah, hell yeah, I know who did it. I, I watched it happen. It happened right in front of my eyes. I know exactly who it was. But after members of the firm went and saw her individually... 
she recanted her testimony and she absolutely refused to identify Ronnie when they put him in a live lineup. I say a live lineup because when you think of a lineup, like you think, you know, there's, there's double-sided glass and blah, blah, blah. No, that's not what that was at all. What they did was messed up. They literally lined up like five dudes in like a yard and had this woman come in and they tried to get her to identify the person that committed the, the murder. What do you think? What do you think is going to happen? You think this lady that obviously is around organized crime, she's not involved in it, but she's around it. If she works in a bar that is filled with organized crime members all the time, she knows what happens. And you think you're going to put her in front of this man and she's be like, ah, him? No, whatever. So now she turns around, she's like, nope, I don't see him. Absolutely not. He doesn't exist. You know what? What killing? I wasn't even there. You know, like that type shit. So now, even though this event severely scared the American mafia, Reggie is actually able to be like, yeah, okay, yeah, I get it. You know, like, I agree. My brother's an asshole. However, my gang is so scary that my brother can walk in the bar and shoot somebody in the head and nobody's gonna talk. Like, come on. That's, that's impressive. Come on. Don't act like you're not impressed. You're a little impressed. We're really scary, bro. Like, he's, you know, he's trying to sell it because he doesn't want to lose this relationship. That's, that, it's a bad thing that happened. So he's just like, come on, come on. You couldn't do that. You couldn't walk in and kill someone and everybody would keep their mouth shut. Like, I'm too, you know, and it worked. It worked. They kept working with them. So these negotiations are going on with Reggie and Raft. And Raft goes to Reggie and he's like, bro, I hate to tell you this, but like, they're worried. Like, yeah, they're cautiously moving forward, but it's not good. This is really bad. And Reggie is like, nah, Raft, no. Look, this is why you shouldn't be scared. And Raft goes to the mafia and he's like, all right, so listen, this is what he said. He said, you shouldn't be scared because, so like he is literally like word for word. Do you guys remember the Virginia Hill episode where I talked about how she would literally just like move secrets? That is what Raft is doing in this situation. Like he's just like going back and forth and he's like, listen, like he does kind of have a point. Like nobody ratted him out, you know? Like, point being, Raft is Reggie's only real lifeline to the mafia and pretty much the only thing that's upholding this relationship. And Reggie's totally fine with that because Reggie loves Raft. Like, this is an icon to him. He idolizes him. He really, really likes Raft. So it's okay with him that he's his only lifeline. That did come to bite him in the ass because Raft decided that he was going to take a trip to the United States. And I don't know if this is something that he did often. It sounds like he kind of did this often. He went back and forth because how would he communicate to the mafia what the Cray twins had to say? It just makes sense that he'd be going back and forth. So he goes to America and he talks to Lansky and Bruno and, and everybody involved. And he's like, all right, listen, this is what Reggie said. He said, you shouldn't be scared because this, 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 and this. So then he goes to go back to the UK because he lives in the UK and at the border, the same thing that happened to Ronnie happened to Raft. Raft has a criminal history. They say, no, absolutely not. You are undesirable. And we don't want the American trash to be coming in here. Absolutely not. Turn around. And Raft was never 
able to enter the UK ever again. This is a serious problem because it cuts off the main pipeline that the Krays have with the American Mafia. So now how are they going to have a relationship? They can't have a conversation on the phone about it. So this is a huge blow to the craze that Raph just goes missing. But honestly, not so much for the Mafia. Like, was it a little bit convenient to have an already standing crime syndicate? Yeah, it was nice. But they were kind of waiting for something to happen. Those guys are insane. Something bad was coming anyway. They are a life sentence waiting to happen. That shit that Ronnie pulled was absolutely unacceptable. So we're really not sad to see that connection go away. So now, while things are still going good, we've got two, you know, big scary criminals, but they are mama's boys. And I think that's super cute, okay? Like, they love their mom. They're, they are so close with their mom. And they go and they buy their mom a pub in Bethnal Green, and it's called the Carpenter's Arms. And they just buy it for her as a gift. Like, oh, here you go. We want to make sure that you'll always be taken care of. So in 1967, they literally hand her, like, hey, here. She didn't have to do anything, and she's just set up for the rest of her life. Like, just in case anything ever happens or in case we're not here to take care of you, here, you're taken care of for the rest of your life. Which I think is just super sweet and cute, and I love it. I love that. A lot more deaths would follow the craze around after this happened. Like, this was just the beginning right here. They broke a man named Frank Mitchell who was known as the Mad Axeman out of jail, but they didn't know that this dude is straight up off his freaking rocker. And, like, dude's crazy, you know? Like, he's very, very, very crazy. He was being held in, like, solitary confinement and confined in prison, but they're like, hey, we want him out. So they break him out, and they give him to one of their men to pretty much, like, handle and take care of for the time being. The guy that was watching him ended up having to kill him and dispose of his body at sea. Because he just, like, went off the rails and he couldn't, like, handle him. He couldn't... He was gonna leave. Like, there was nothing else he could do. The Krays were charged with his murder, but they were acquitted, so they didn't go to jail. Which, I mean, they didn't do it, you know? They did break him out, but they didn't kill him. Many, many, many years later, Freddie Foreman would admit to shooting Mitchell in the back of a van and disposing of his body after he kind of went crazy and was trying to get out and he didn't have anything else he could do. One of the most devastating things in this entire story is in July of 1967, Reggie's wife, Frances, unalived herself. The couple had been fighting a lot recently, and being the wife of a mafia boss, it's it's not easy. It's, it's, you take on probably just as much being the wife, you know, like, you know all this crazy, nasty, bad shit is happening, and you don't even really have the power to do anything about it. There was a theory that Ronnie actually killed Francis in a fit of jealousy, but I don't, I don't know if it's true. I don't know. A former prison bunkmate of Reggie's claims that Reggie had actually gone to him and admitted to him one night that Ronnie had killed Francis and told Reggie about it two days later. Again, I don't think it's true. Like, she died from an overdose of pills. She clearly swallowed an entire bottle of pills. I don't, think he had anything to do with it, but, I mean, people will say anything. Like, I'm literally saying this man's, 
you know, I'm talking about this man's words right now. 50 years later, I'm talking about something he had to say. And, and that does lead people to say certain things, but I just don't see it. But apparently it's a theory that Ronnie had killed Francis and, you know, made it look like a suicide. Things were not easy for Francis, and Reggie had been warned multiple times that Francis was fragile. It seems like she may have been in like a mental institution or something before she got with Reggie, and he just kind of didn't take it very seriously. He didn't heed the warnings, and they were in a particularly bad fight, and she swallowed an entire bottle of pills. This absolutely destroyed Reggie. He was never the same after that. Like, he was in love with this girl. They had separated, they had their issues and everything, but at the end of the day, Francis was Reggie's reason for breathing and messed him up bad that she died. Four months later, after a member of the firm had, I guess he had attempted to kill someone and he wasn't able to do it, he was ordered to kill this person. He was given $500 and the other $500 was going to be paid after it was done. He wasn't able to pull off the hit and Reggie got irrationally angry and attempted to shoot him at point blank range. When the gun didn't go off, he ended up stabbing this dude over, like, a hundred times. He had all the things in the world to say about how Ronnie went in and killed George Carnell in front of an entire group of people, but this also happened in front of a lot of people. Like, they were having a party. It was a lot of people around, and he just killed him. And, like, not to go into, like, two gory of details, but like what he killed him with was a carving knife. So he had to work to kill this man. Like it's a, a carving knife is like that big. Probably the blade is probably like this big. It's tiny. So like he would have to stab him, twist it, pull it back out. Like it was a lot of thought that went into continuing to do this, you know, like it wasn't a quick one, two, three. It took a while and he was just so out of his mind. It's four months after his wife unalived herself. Like, he was just messed up. He would say that the reason for killing him was because he hadn't fulfilled the contract that he had been given. He didn't do what he was paid to do. But rumor has it that it's actually because the man, who is Jack the Hat McVitie, had been mocking his wife's passing and his own mental health since her death. And he had also been threatening the twins and their family and stack all of that on top of the fact that McVitie had a pretty extensive and ruthless reputation for being like a belligerent drunkie and druggy, and you have a recipe for a man that literally just does not care. Reggie did not care. He knew McVitie had to die, and he had said something along the lines, well, like, well, that's why she killed herself. Like, you know, some nasty, nasty shit that you don't go to the leader of the mafia and take one of the most painful things that ever happened to him and throw it in his face and not expect something to happen. But I wouldn't wish that way of death on anybody. Like, that's horrible. My best friend was killed in a similar manner, and it's something you don't really get over. So I have a lot of empathy for the family of McVitie. Like, 
it can't have been easy to know that that happened. Like, yes, a lot of these deaths, they kind of get brushed under the rug because it's a member of a criminal syndicate, you know, like they're in crime. They know what they're signing up for, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, like that's someone's son, you know, he probably had sisters or brothers or kids like and they have to deal with that wreckage later you know it's not just a quick hit and he was standing there in his friend's house and he caught one in the back of the head didn't know it was coming like this was a long drawn out death and that alone is kind of where i'm like you deserve to get in trouble for this bro like you can't just walk away from that the disposal of mcvitie's body is pretty much what led to the beginning of the end of the twins reign over London. It sounds like this was a whole freaking mess. Like, I'm so surprised that this hasn't been made into a movie because this, <laughs> I can literally see it play out in my head. This is a whole mess. It's like one of those, if you want something right, you gotta do it yourself type situations. So let me paint the scene for you and see if you can play the movie in your head of what is going on because this is absolutely crazy. So you've got five gangsters that are tasked with the job of getting rid of this body. They pretty much bind the body up in a rug and throw it in the back seat and transported it because it was too big for the boot of the car. So it's sitting in the back seat of the car. So now you've got three dudes in the front car and two dudes in the back car. And they're following them to make sure that nothing happens. Like, kind of like a crash car. If anybody, if a cop were to go and pull this car over, or if anything happened, they were the ones that were going to be like, uh, no, they were the ones that were going to make sure that first car that had the body was going to get where it had to go. So the car that has the three dudes that have the body in it are driving along, and it sounds like it was one of those situations where, have you ever been following someone and they're driving, and they know that you're following them, but they're driving all crazy and you're like, come on, dude, you know you have someone following you. Why would you drive like that? They're running yellow lights at the last second. They're doing all kinds of crazy shit. It sounds like that's what's going on here. And the two dudes in the follow car lost the car that was carrying the body. They lost it. And they're like, oh, what the frick are we supposed to do? This is 1960 something. There's no cell phones. So now they're like, oh shit. So they spend the next 15 minutes frantically searching for this car. They can't find it anywhere. And the two dudes in the follow car finally come upon the car. It had run out of gas, so the three dudes that were in the front car decided, like, okay, this is a whole lot of not my job. It is not my problem. I'm not worried about it. And they leave the car sitting in front of a church with the body sitting in a back seat. Like, oh my god. They're just like, not my problem. So the two dudes that are in the follow car find a payphone and they call Charlie. Remember Charlie? He's the older brother of the twins. Well, he is in a high position in the firm and the two dudes in the follow car get to a payphone and they call Charlie and they're like, yo, like, what the hell are we supposed to do? This car is sitting in front of a church with a body sitting in the back seat. And the car ran out of gas. I have no idea what to do. Tell me what to do. Charlie calls Reggie and he tells him about the situation. And Reggie obviously loses his mind. Who would not lose their mind in that, that situation? He is frantically calling everybody that he can think of that may be able to help because he is not 
willing to be seen near the car, obviously. Like, just in case he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not doing it. I'm not going anywhere near that car. So he's looking for anybody that can help. He calls up Freddie Foreman, a friend that the twins had had since they were like little kids. And Freddie Foreman actually ended up writing an autobiography about his life in the firm later on. And so they call Foreman and ask if he can get rid of the car. Foreman goes, he breaks into the car, he throws some gas in it, and he brings it to the docks. He finds somebody that's working at the docks, asks them, taps him on the shoulder, and he's like, um, excuse me, sir, do you think you can help me throw this massive bag into the water? Like, it's really heavy. So the dude's like, yeah, sure, no problem, and helps them throw the body into the water, and bing, bang, boom, you know, Handled, took care of it, I rock, booyah. Reggie killing McVitie really, really messed with a lot of people. It messed with people in the firm because they had a very strong feeling of like, that could easily have been me. Like, he wasn't able to carry out a hit so you kill him. Like, who are you going to kill next? That could be me next. It's a little extreme if you ask me. Like, come on, dude, couldn't you just, like, yell at him, beat him up? No, you had to, you absolutely had to stab him a hundred times in front of everybody. Like, you had to do that. And everybody in the firm just starts feeling like, well, what if that's me next? You know, what if I don't get a perfect outcome in one of my jobs? They're just gonna take a carving knife and gut me with it? Like, not a great possibility to have lingering over your head. It's just not a good look, and they all got really scared. It also really messed with civilians and people that are in the areas around because it gave a very brutal and bloody aura to the gang. Like, the firm was a very well-known entity, and the entire East End knew who they were. And they knew that, yeah, they do some crime, but they help people, you know? Like, the people see them as, like, this Robin Hood entity, you know? But you know what Robin Hood never did? Stab somebody a hundred times in front of a whole shit ton of people? Yeah, Robin didn't get down like that. Mm-mm. That was not Robin's game. So the people in the area around start getting really nervous. Like, this is brutal. Like, somebody died not too long ago at the Blind Beggar. Now you got this dude getting stabbed a bunch of times. Like, maybe this is a very violent situation, and maybe we shouldn't be so okay with these criminals. At this point, things are just not going very well for either twin. Each had publicly murdered someone. And the one that was kind of considered a little crazy, who's Ronnie, had actually pulled off the more acceptable killing. At least he killed an enemy, not a friend. After witnessing, or even after hearing about it for the people that weren't at the party and watched it happen, which was a majority of the people in the firm, so after that happened, after, you know, the, the McVitie situation happened, there is legit a line around the block of people outside the Scotland Yard trying to get rid of the Cray Twins. They're done. They're, this is just enough. We're done. We're not about to sit here and wait for them to come after us next. They're like, yeah, like, it is way too easy for me to picture myself being in that position because we've all had jobs go bad. We've all had something crazy happen that didn't allow us to pull off our job. Like, how many times do you hear that so they attempted to, to hit someone? They attempted to kill... 
there's a reason for that. It, it happens all the time. And I am not about to sit around waiting for one of these lunatic brothers to come after me because I made a mistake. Not today, Satan. You're gone. We're done. The Scotland Yard, by the way, is what they called the police in London. It's like the NYPD in New York. They're named after an old location, but they police all 32 boroughs of London. So when I say Scotland Yard, they're going to rat. The prosecutor that I've been tasked with taking down the Cray twins, Detective Chief Superintendent Leonard Nipper Reed, had been given the case as his first case in the department. He had tried for the first time in 1964 to take them down, but he backed down because nobody would talk. It was public knowledge that Ronnie's sexual relationship with Boothby was going on. He was untouchable. The media wouldn't mess with him. Nobody would open their mouth. He had no way to take these guys down, so he moved on. He couldn't do it. He tried again in 1967, and that is when he found some success. All along, every single cop that tried to take down the craze, they would get nowhere because everybody was too scared to testify, and there is this loyalty to this gang from everybody, from people in the gang, from the people around it. They all had this loyalty and just a wall of silence in the entire neighborhood. But all of a sudden, after McVitie was killed, there is an unlimited number of people that are willing to testify, and voila, you have a case. The arrest of the Cray twins, along with 15 other members of the firm, took place on May 8th, 1968. They went through a lot to keep these people separated. Each person was arrested and blocked access to the public and all of their other co-defendants. So pretty much the idea is they don't want them to collude amongst themselves to get their story straight. Each of those people were given the offer of a deal in exchange for their cooperation against the craze. The murder of Frank Mitchell, the Mad Axeman, that, you know, the one that went bonkers and died because they broke him out of prison and blah, blah, blah. The Cray twins planned to put that murder onto Albert Donahue. Donahue was the first person that agreed to testify against them because he's like, I'm, I'm not going to jail for the rest of my life for you. Absolutely not. So yeah, he's witness number one. Now, do you remember earlier when I was talking about Richard Hart, the dude that got killed in a shootout? Well, his brother, Ronnie Hart, was the second person to turn state's evidence after the craze planned to pin the murder of George Cornell onto him. And Cornell, we know, is the dude that Ronnie had shot in the head in The Blind Beggar. He planned to put the murder onto Ronnie Hart, so Ronnie Hart flipped and turned state's evidence as well. When the craze found out that Hart had flipped, they decided to try to pin the murder on another member, Scotch Jack Dixon. He was the third. He quickly turned state's evidence as well. Reed saw this pattern of the craze just trying to place the blame of these murders onto other people. So he was able to go to the barmaid that was working at the Blind Beggar the day that Ronnie killed Cornell, and he got her to agree to testify against Ronnie as long as they kept her identity a secret. So you ever see, like, those Dateline episodes where they have, like, the outline of a person and, like, it's black and their voice is, like, messed with? That's the way that they allowed her to testify. Because they saw 
these guys trying to place the blame on a whole bunch of different people, they went to this barmaid and the barmaid was like, I, yeah, like, fine, I'll do it. The craze really didn't bother to build a defense. They just flat out was like, I didn't do it. Prove it. You know, like, they tried to put the blame on other people. When they weren't able to do that, they were just like, I don't know. I don't know who is to blame. It wasn't us. Their trial ended up being the longest murder hearing in the history of the British criminal justice system. And after the hearing, both Cray twins were sentenced to life in prison with a non-parole period of 30 years for the murder of Cornell and McVitie in March of 1969. Charlie, their older brother, was sentenced to 10 years in prison for the part he played in the crimes. When their mother died on August 11th, 1982, the twins were allowed out of prison to attend her funeral. Even though they were in the middle of serving their life sentence, they attended, and so does Britain's elite. Diana Doors, an A-list celebrity, as well as the creme de la creme of London's underworlds, all attended to support the craze. When their father died a year later, they were just exhausted and they didn't want the mayhem of the media circus that had happened from their mother's funeral, so they didn't even go. They could have gone. They could have petitioned to be able to go. But they were just like, no, we're not going through that again. Absolutely not. Ronnie was placed in solitary confinement under heavy medication until he was declared insane and committed to a mental hospital at Broodmore Hospital in Crawthorne, Berkshire in 1979. During his time in solitary, Cray would often cook meals that was able to be handed out to the other prisoners on his floor. A fellow inmate, Ian Brady, who will also be getting his own episode because I was, like, looking into it to see if I could give any facts on him, but this dude is super freaking interesting, so I'm not going over him at all because I will be doing an episode on him in the future. So he also would cook for the other inmates on his level, but he was on a different level than Ronnie, so he would cook for the people on his level, Ronnie would cook for the people on his level... And these, you know, infamous gangsters are creating nice dishes for all the guys on, like, death row. It's not death row, but, like, that level of security. It is a class A prison that he's in. Reggie started putting in for parole almost immediately, and he was consistently denied. It's weird, though, because when they sentenced him, they said that there was a 30-year non-parole period. So I don't even know how he applied for it right away. Maybe... When they say that, they mean the appeals process because they say it was a that he was putting in for parole, but I'm pretty sure it was like appeals process, but he kept getting turned down. They were like, absolutely not. Shut up. He was locked up at Maidstone Prison, a category B prison for eight years. And then he moved in 1997 to Wayland Prison, which was a Category C prison. So he did get a little bit of a reprieve in terms of the security of the prison. So this story should end here, right? Like, they're in jail for the rest of their lives, point blank, period, nothing left to say. But that is not the case. During their time in prison, the twins regularly had, like, 
big-name celebrities come to visit them. Richard Burton and Barbara Windsor had each hit each of the twins' facilities, but the most surprising celebrity to go and visit Ronnie was when Angela Tremble, who was known as Debbie Harry, the Playboy Bunny, turned star of the rock band Blondie, had visited him at Broodmore. Richard Burton was an A-list celebrity, and he would come to visit pretty often, and Ronnie would just brag to anybody that would listen, like, oh, look, I'm in jail for the rest of my life, but I have A-list celebrities like Richard Burton coming to see me. He had to get that street cred. Although the twins lived pretty cushy lives in prison, it was still rough. Like, they were only 35 years old when they were thrown in jail, and they knew that they would live the rest of their lives in prison. Reggie got so depressed at one point that he had taken glass, smashed it, and used the pieces of the glass to try to unalive himself. This was following a period of time where he had been bounced around to six maximum security prisons, and he just started to feel like there was no light at the end of the tunnel. After this initial attempt, which obviously it, it didn't work, thankfully, but after this, the two had each found a way to kind of make their life a little more bearable in the institutions that they were in. Ronnie definitely got the better end of things. He went to Broodmore and it was a hospital, you know, like it was just a lot easier than being in a prison. It was a prison hospital, but it was a hospital. Like you got doctors rather than prison security, like prison officers are no freaking joke, man. So he definitely made out better than Reggie, but he still was incarcerated, but he would wear Gucci ties, he had velvet curtains in his cell, and he would regularly just, like, go send his friends on a shopping spree and, like, oh, go get this and go get this and bring it to me. He would have people go out and get him opera records, and he was able to get his hands on a gramophone, and he was able to play records like operas on this gramophone. Reggie, who was always in prison, he didn't go to a mental hospital, he had a little bit of a harder time, but it still ended up working out. The pair, they regularly sold memorabilia, and they would sell, like, t-shirts, and they would use this money to fund the cushy little lifestyles that they had built. This little side hustle brought in about 3,000 pounds a week. And they ended up opening a security company, and the security company was very, very successful and brought in a shit ton of money. And after that point, it was like no problem at all to just maintain this high-end lifestyle that they had built for themselves while they were institutionalized. Ronnie had started multiple affairs with other inmates that he was in Broodmore with, and he would like slyly go meet them in bathrooms and perform sexual acts and he had other prisoners that would like sit outside the bathroom and keep a lookout. Throughout his time at Broodmore, it was proven that Ronnie had ordered the death of at least three people from his jail cell, but the killings ended up being intercepted and not carried out. In Broodmore, he was known as the Colonel because of the way that, like, he marched around everywhere that he went. Which is, like, super weird. Why would you march? Like, that's weird. 
Fred Dindage, a world-renowned journalist, would come to interview the twins pretty regularly to get material for a movie and a book that he was writing about the craze. He eventually became the official biographer of the craze, and he would later come out and talk about how Joey Pyle had approached him when he arrived at Broodmore and pretty much like threatened him to write an honest account of the craze. Pyle was an extremely well-known underworld figure who was like kind of obsessed with the craze and he wanted to make sure that like they would be taken care of in the public eye. Later on when that book came out, he told Dinage it was very nice. Well done. He wrote a book that was titled Our Story about the pair of the twins. He said, there was a thrill in being able to get that close, knowing that you weren't in any danger. He said that like when he was speaking about how he sat there and listened to them talk about these crazy, brutal crimes that they had committed, but like, you're in an institution, nothing can really happen to you, but there's some danger there. He talked about how at Broodmore, Ronnie literally had a butler. The butler was another patient that had been in Broodmore for a double murder and pretty much waited on Ronnie hand and foot. At one point, Ronnie had reached out to Reggie and told him to do Charlie Richardson, a rival gangster whose firm was currently running South London. He ordered Reggie to do it because Richardson was currently in jail, like, only a few cells down from Reggie, so he, like, hit up Reggie and was like, kill him. Bobby Cummins, an ex-leader of a firm that had run North London, was able to negotiate peace talks between the two because it looked like a bloody gang war was about to erupt, and it was gonna mess up the cushy lives that these guys were all able to build for themselves in prison. They did not want that to happen, so he was able to step in and stop that from happening. While Ronnie was at Broodmore one day, the nurse came in and she was cleaning the room that he was in. Like, all nonchalant, and you know, just another Monday, like, cleaning the room. And she stumbles upon a business card. Apparently, business card clearly proves that even though Ronnie is at Broodmore and Reggie is at Maidstone, the pair are working together to own and operate a security company that is making shit tons of money. They are able to work together through Charlie because Charlie is able to go and visit each of them. He had been released after he served seven years of his 10-year sentence, so he is running the business and he's bringing any pertinent information to each of the brothers, and they're helping to finance this business, but Charlie's on the ground running it because he's free. The security company, Craylay Enterprises, provides these security protection services to, like, the elite of the elite. At this point, I feel like I can't get through an entire video without mentioning this A-list celebrity. Can you guess it? I'll give you a minute to guess. do 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 Okay, lock in your guesses. If you guessed the A-list celebrity that is most famously mobbed up and completely involved in American Mafia affairs, Frank Sinatra, you win. There's no prize, but you do get to brag about your knowledge of Hollywood's history with the Mafia, so there's a prize in and of itself. 
Frank Sinatra hired the Kralay Enterprises security team to provide 18 security guards for him for his trip to London to see the 1985 Wimbledon Championships. So the authorities know that these two are operating this crazy successful business and they're just like, it's not really worth our time to take this company down. That's just like not my job. So Ronnie wrote an autobiography called My Story. In the 1960s, there was this woman named Monica who he fully planned to marry before he got arrested and locked up. They had continued a relationship through a series of 59 letters back and forth. And even though she did end up marrying another man who just so happens to be Ronnie's ex-boyfriend, these letters between Ronnie and Monica were pretty steamy. And they stopped in 1968, but they were auctioned off for 750 pounds in 2010. He later married Elaine Mildener, in 1985, and they divorced in 1989. And at that point, Ronnie married Kate Howard in 1989, and they divorced in 1994. He ended up ordering Kate's murder after it had come out in a book that the pair had a sex pact that Ronnie believed made him look stupid. He didn't like it. But he was, like, ignored. Nobody's gonna go and kill a girl that pissed you off. Like, nobody's gonna do it. So when everybody just kind of, like, ignored him, he dropped it. Reggie married a woman named Roberta Jones in 1997. There was a series of books written about these guys. Like, there was a lot of them. Ronnie's book, My Story, was written in 1994 after Reggie had written his own autobiography, Born Fighter, in 1990. He later wrote another autobiography, A Way of Life, Over 30 Years of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, in 2000. Kate Cray, Ronnie's second wife, wrote two books, Sorted, Murder, Madness, and Marriage, as well as Free at Last. The brothers together wrote Our Story in 1988. That was a combined autobiography with the both of them. And Charlie Cray wrote his own autobiography, Me and My Brothers, in the year 2000. David Michael wrote a book titled The Prison Years, which pretty much explains what happened to the Crays all those years that they were in jail, and all the people that came to visit, and just like their lives while they were in jail. Pearson wrote a biography about the twins titled The Profession of Violence, in which he claims that Ronnie admitted that both the twins knew they were gay from a very young age and used to have sex together often, and it lasted throughout their entire lives, even into adulthood. A movie was released in 1990 called The Craze, and the release of this movie spurred a campaign that had some pretty serious celebrity backing to release the pair from prison. Each of the three brothers got $255,000 for the movie. The prison left this campaign off. Like, no, these guys each have a very violent history with other inmates, and neither one of them are getting out. I don't care what celebrity says they should. Ronnie died at 61 years old of a heart attack on March 17th, 1995. Reggie attended the funeral in handcuffs. 
Reggie was diagnosed with terminal bladder cancer, and he was granted release from prison on compassionate release on August 26, 2000. He died at his house on October 1st, 2000. Thousands of people lined up to say goodbye to him, and he was transported to be buried beside his brother, Ronnie. When he was released, he wasn't really out for very long, but he spent the time after being released from prison at home with Roberta, his wife. Charles Cray was arrested and sentenced to 12 years in prison in 1997 as he laid the groundwork to sell a massive amount of cocaine to an undercover agent. He died in prison on April 4th, 2000, only six months before Reggie passed away. Reggie did also attend his funeral. So that is all the information I have on these two crazy, insane twins. Again, this was my first two-part episode. I hope you guys enjoyed. Let me know if you think that this should have been one part, if you would have preferred one, you know, like four-hour long episode, or, you know, if you were able to get through all of part one and part two, I would greatly appreciate you letting me know in the comments. That would be cool. Thanks so much for coming and hanging out with me. I really hope you enjoyed it. I really enjoyed researching this one, so I really hope that you enjoyed it. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, do all the things, and I will see you next week. Bye!